Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to an HBC special report. I'm your host, John Adams, along with Chris Kendall. And this special report is titled, The Impact of Aerospace on Society. Chris, how are you doing today, sir? Oh, well, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. Um... We are going to be looking at the aerospace industry, and I'm guessing this is going to be a multi-part series. Um, but in this installment, we are going to talk about the social dynamic impact of aerospace. And I'm going to be referencing um, a couple of books and an article uh, in this piece. And one of those books is called Blue Sky Metropolis, Southern California in the Aerospace Century, and it was edited by Professor Peter Westwick. And it's a series of essays, um, particularly on the impact of aerospace on culture in Southern California. Another book uh, we'll be referencing is High Life, Condo Living in the Suburban Century by Professor Matthew Lassner. And we're also going to reference an article by Professor Lassner called Swing Sites for Singles. And lastly, we're going to be referencing a book called From Bible Belt to Sun Belt, Plain Folk Religion, Grassroots Politics, and the Rise of Evangelical Conservatism by Professor Darren Dochuk. And all of these books were very informative. I sure did learn a lot uh, doing this research. And... Um, Chris and I will be discussing and speculating on some things that you may not have heard before of the discoveries uh, throughout this research. Um, I just wanted to reiterate that Southern California, uh, throughout this series that we've been doing, uh, is not, was after the Civil War an agricultural region um, and also had oil production. And that was mainly... Uh, what it generated. A little bit of fishing, a little bit of mining on the side, but mostly agriculture and oil. So most of the production in the United States at that time, uh, manufacturing, was done in the northeastern part of the U.S. So if you were going to create an aerospace industry or an airplane industry like back at that time, um, why choose Southern California or the West Coast? It's, a, it's an interesting choice to base your manu to have a manufacturing base out of, um, uh, because 
most of the production was done in the Northwest and the center of the, the population was centered around that area of the country as well. Uh, so this takes long-term strategic planning and that's what I would propose. And I'm sure uh, Chris would concur with that. We had a discussion before we uh, started this talk about this particular um, thing. And um, of course I'll be asking Chris throughout the discussion, what he thinks and to um, expound upon what I'm proposing here. Um, what you get into uh, with airplanes in the 20th century after the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk, which was uh, like, uh, which was 1903, somewhere near the end of 1903. Um, I think it was uh, in December of 1903. So in the 1904, um, you have this surge of interest in, in flying. And the Wright brothers weren't the only ones pursuing flight or anything like that. This was a big deal. This really was, uh, to pardon the pun, this really was taking flight after the uh, Civil War. And Pasadena, California, was one of the places where they used to test uh, air balloons and dirigibles and later aircraft uh, after the Civil War. This wasn't a recent thing because, you see, Pasadena still today is associated with aerospace because it is the home of Caltech University and Propulsion Laboratory. Um, now, so early on, this uh, aerospace industry was associated with Southern California. And moving on up after, like I said, the Wright brothers, into uh, the year of 1910, the Wright brothers actually established a school um, for flying, for flying, and for pilots and things like that. And so, two men to come out of that school uh, were Johnstone and Hoxey. Interesting name there, Hoxey. Um, and these two guys uh, became became what were known as the Heavenly Twins. And they were kind of these dueling guys within the media, trying to one up each other with uh, tricks and records. Uh, set for flying, like heights and things like this. And these pilots, because there wasn't any, you know, airplane stuff uh, like we have today, pilots were celebrities. They were looked at as daredevils and, um, and uh, you know, guy, you know, risk takers and things like this. So it was a, uh, it was a big deal. Uh, for pilots to be breaking, you know, records and things like this with with uh, airplanes. And in 1910, they had the first international air show, and it was in Los Angeles, of all places to choose. They chose Los Angeles. It was in the Dominguez Hills area, and Dominguez Hills is located in the South Bay of Los Angeles, and the South Bay. Uh, would become one of the main hubs of the military industrial complex slash defense industry. Um, so a little bit of foreshadowing there. And at this international air show, the first international air show in the United States, uh, these two gentlemen, Johnstone and, and Hoxie, uh, were breaking uh, records at this air show as well. And so it was a big deal because uh, 230,000 people showed up to this air show, and that was more than half the population of Los Angeles at the time. So, uh, 
what was aerospace uh, when when airplanes were first coming out? Well, it basically was modernism. It was it was associated with modernism. There was um, an attachment to modernism and moving forward technologically. Um, airplanes were considered to be the pinnacle of science and engineering. Uh, they were considered to be a step forward technologically, and the public was fascinated with the idea of flight. It was an unconquered um, frontier, and uh, there was a lot of pioneering to be done in the area. And it happened fairly quickly, I have to say. If you, you know, I'm I'm just doing a rough kind of overview of it, but it happened in a very short time that. You know, you know, by 1910, coming up from 1904, you already had planes where people were, you know, breaking world records with, you know, flying 11,000 feet in the air and things like that. So um, this is very interesting because this is one of the reasons in the, in the book Blue Sky Metropolis, they, they ask a question. They say, why Southern California? Why was that the place for airplanes to be tested and to have this association with uh, Southern California and airplanes. Why? And one of the reasons is, is because, and, and I, I, they, they touch on this a little bit, they're, too, they're way too apologetic in this book because they're apologizing for this being an unscientific uh, answer to the question. And what they proposed is that there was a romance with flying. Um, a kind of mythos uh, associated with it that, that ran parallel to the idea of the Wild West. And I would expand on that and say that that was actually known and that it was actually created for that purpose. And that because that idea was embedded in the public image of the Wild West and the wild um, uncharted territory of of flying, it, it ran parallel to the wide open spaces and uncharted territory of the West that was not yet conquered. It's interesting if you think about it in the in the technical sense, the West ended up being conquered by aerospace itself because of suburbanization and, and industrialization. So agriculture and oil was done away with in the area and it was supplanted by suburbanization and industrial industrialization, which was a result of the aerospace industry coming here and proliferating outwards. And that came much later because by 1927, you kind of have this lull with you know uh, happening with you know people aren't really that interested in airplanes. It's kind of dying off. And one way that they proceeded to revitalize that interest was this North Atlantic, this alleged North Atlantic flight by Charles Lindbergh. And I don't agree with a lot of things that Miles Mathis puts in his articles, but uh, some of the stuff that he does put in there, uh, I agree with and is very interesting. And overall, find his uh, articles uh, very good. Uh, but he recently did an article on Charles Lindbergh and was calling out the Lindbergh uh, kid, baby kidnapping as a hoax, and then also went on to call 
the flight over the North Atlantic as a hoax. And the more I look into it, uh, that looks like it seems to be the case. And I won't get too far off into that, but um, I would recommend you could just, you don't even have to go look at Mathis's article. You could just go look at Wikipedia and look at all the ridiculous stuff that, that was happening with this particular flight. But it was mainly a promotion because um, I looked into it a little bit. They already had commercial airline stuff ready to go. And it looks like this was kind of a promotion to get the public all hyped about uh, flying. Because at this time, a lot of people were still unsure about flying. They didn't want to fly. And um, this rekindled an interest. And what you see in the wake of Lindbergh's uh, flight is, um, like, hundreds of thousands of men went out and got their pilot's license. And um, airmail started to be used more. And uh, commercial air travel started at this point. So I found the most interesting thing about that is that men went out and got their pilot's license. Well, that's interesting because only, you know, what, 13 years later, 14, 15, I can't remember, I can't uh, remember, 15 years later, uh, you have, you're going to be, using men to pilot things to go to war. And, you know, World War One had already kind of normalized the use of the airplane as well, because uh, there was they were using uh, airplanes in World War One, And so it, it's been normalized at that point. So by the time World War Two comes around, now the idea of a normal, just everyday guy, it goes from, you know, risk taker and daredevil to a normal everyday guy getting his pilot's license, and being able to be a pilot in World War II. So there's a lot of predictive programming leading up to World War II that has to do with airplanes and aircraft production as well. One of the other things is Amelia Earhart. And if you look into Amelia Earhart's background, she has a uh, questionable background as well. Um, and uh, I largely think that Amelia Earhart was kind of a public relations thing done to predictively program women to want to do the Rosie the Riveter thing in World War II. That's what it looks like. It's kind of preempting this idea that women, women are, you know, it's okay for a woman to fly. It's barely even okay for a woman to vote, but she's lot, you know, but now Amelia Earhart pilots a plane. So, uh, I have no problem with women uh, flying planes, by the way. I'm just saying in the context of how this was worked out and how the modernism, the modification of the previous culture, this was all taking place. The one interesting thing I thought uh, about Amelia Earhart, you go look this up. Um, she was billed as Lady Lindy because she bears a striking resemblance to Charles Lindbergh. She looks like a female Charles Lindbergh. And I thought that was really interesting um, in hindsight to go back and actually see that. And, uh, yeah, she does bizarrely look like Charles Lindbergh. And she did have that kind of lesbian quality to her, even though uh, I guess she wasn't a lesbian. But that, that's kind of the promotion of of her as kind of a 
you know, a, a woman who wears the pants kind of thing. And this would later be revitalized during World War II to get women into the factories. And there was a large percentage of women who worked in aerospace factories during World War II. In fact, at Douglas Aircraft alone, it was almost 90% of the factory workers were women during uh, World War II. And when the cold, after World War II, when the Cold War came on, they had no problem letting all those women go from their jobs and then getting them to start their nuclear families in their suburban homes. After the Lindbergh um, flight, you have what's called the Lindbergh boom from 27 to 1929. And there's a boom in, in uh, aircraft uh, innovation and production and a lot of startup companies. Uh, start getting interested um, in this idea of in this idea of uh, airplanes, and once the twenty nine crash happens, all a lot of those companies went completely and totally out of out of business, or were consolidated by the companies who ended up being the big aircraft manufacturers later on. Uh, which does happen. You do have people who do have genuine innovations and things. I mean. Um, Chris can attest to this that uh, you know people innovate things in the computer world and they it gets swallowed up and ideas stolen or bought by bigger companies. Um, now um, I'm going to ask Chris specifically about this because Chris actually um, kindled a flame. Of, uh, of what what's the word I'm looking for? You know, sparked something in in my mind as I was doing this research because he's actually in, in past calls talked about the Dust Bowl being a a conspiracy. Uh, and um, so when I started reading about how there was mass migration from Oklahoma to Southern California, I started rolling rolling it around in my mind. That because when when Chris has talked about it, you don't really, uh, he hasn't really come to a conclusion per se as to why that was or what the what the purpose of it was. But I was looking at this mass migration from Oklahoma and Arkansas and Texas, right around the areas of the Dust Bowl during the Depression period, and it times out perfectly with World War II and cheap labor of all of the Oklahomans who moved to Southern California because of the Dust Bowl. And you hear the stories of, you know, Grapes of Wrath, John Steinbeck, that, that all takes place in Southern California with grape workers. And it's true that people migrated to the Central Valley as well. But there was a lot of people who migrated to Southern California and ended so many that they ended up historically dubbing them the Aviation Okies, particularly to the South Bay area of Los Angeles. Um, basically, if you said you were straight out of Compton in the 1940s, that meant you were a hillbilly. Okay, you weren't you weren't a homeboy. You were a hillbilly back then. In fact, the um, some of the earliest country music variety shows were filmed in Compton, like Town Hall Party and Ranch Party. Um, and country music uh, was big in Los Angeles, one of the big uh, 
blowtorches out of uh, L.A. was a, for a long time was a country radio station called KZLA that was started in the 50s. And um, Capitol Records put out a lot of country music. That's because there were so many Southerners and um, Oklahomans in Southern California at that time. But, uh, Chris, can you go over a little bit about your uh, commentary on the Dust Bowl in the past and what you think of my speculation that that uh, it could have been a contrived thing to actually... I guess a purposely created crisis to get people to migrate. Does that sound familiar? Huh? Well, I would, <laughs> I think that it, it, it lends itself to a certain interpretation. I know people would listen to this and think, well, that is, you know, preposterous. How do you, how do you force, you know, have that much foresight and planning and something that is um, indicative of, of I've talked about this, you know, and this comes up frequently in conversations. It's that uh, the idea that, you know, technology, and, you know, you listen to Alan Watt and he brings us up that, you know, there, there is technology is by the time, I think the way he described it and, and I, and I tend to agree with his, uh, his his uh thoughts on that is that it uh by the time you get your hands on it in the form of a, like a consumer product like technology is already antique or obsolete as far as how what goes on in um you know either underground uh laboratories or um just not in the public mind or thought or view as far as what exists by by way of technology, and if you adopt that view that maybe you know there is advancements in technology that people aren't aware of, or there is like technological principles at least that are established and are confirmed that would lend itself to that type of long term thought out planning. To where you have, uh, you know, this m- migration from the middle of the country out out west, in order to prepare the stage for the uh, emergence of the aerospace industry, and I, and I too, I mean, you know, and it's interesting how this um, this discussion we're having here has developed into this, you know, realization kind of dovetailing back into something I talked about, um, yeah, it was quite a while back. And I, I was looking at the Dust Bowl and how it all kind of transpired over the course of, of years. And then I think the the onset of the onset of it was actually the um, what was called the Oklahoma land rush. And so there were, you know, they were they would um, actually, you know, literally take people, line them up. And then you got your horse, you got, you you know, if you're, if you're on foot, you're on foot, whatever, you got to get to a plot of land, stake your claim. So they, they would literally take stakes and stake it in the ground. Okay. This is mine here, you know, and then you were, um, the owner of that, uh, property and the way they parceled it out was 60 acres, you know, and then, you know, so you have, you've heard the expression, you know, 60 acres and a mule. 
Well, that's, you know, they, that's what they got parceled out. But, um, according to this article I read, and that's what I was talking about on the call back, you know, when I was break, uh, going into this, the, the parceling of the land itself lent itself to uh, farming practices that, uh, with, you, you know, the crop rotation, that would be available and the amount of production and stuff that you would have to uh, get out to be viable as a farmer, it resulted in the Dust Bowl because the, the it, it, it was just enough to, you know, do um, the, uh, to do a farm, to do ranching on, but it, it was not enough to uh, uh, accommodate proper crop rotation. So, now you can maybe postulate, okay, the government or just, you know, at the time didn't know what they were doing. I really, I cannot accept that. I mean, this was in the thirties. This is, we're not talking about four or 500 years ago, even how long has agriculture been around? This is not something that this is not an error that was made uh, from lack of foresight or anything like that. It was, it was made in foresight of getting people to not only um, develop the land and get it, um, you know, because there's a lot of, lot of hard backbreaking labor that goes into taking land and turning it into something that's, you know, that would accommodate crops. So there was a, you know, twofold benefit that happened. You had the migration that headed out West, like you mentioned, and then the, uh, the the banks came in and took possession of all that land and they uh which was prior not a very good asset post uh you know the uh land brush and all of that that's where you get boomer sooners and that's where sooners and they still have the OU sooners and all that but post that you had you had farmable land that was a valuable commodity that the bankers then took possession of so, you know, there's, there's always multiple benefits to these things, but yeah, I didn't want to, I don't want to, you know, go on and on about that. But so back to Southern California and the aerospace industry. Yeah, it looks, I mean, it's all timed out perfectly. I mean, the, the Time dust bowl comes better. Yeah, the timing couldn't have been better. And the generation that comes in during the Dust Bowl, uh, and then the, you know, the mini generation that comes after that are the ones who end up working in the factories and it's cheap labor. I mean, once again, you create a crisis that creates a migration to a certain area and you have cheap labor. You see, there wasn't enough people to be able to occupy the factories at that particular time either. Now, there were migrations of people after the war started. But see, this is very interesting. The aircraft industry was already based here prior to the war, and the people were here to be able to do that. Also, one of the enticements of, of you know, moving out west, go west, young man, um, after the Dust Bowl was that they could work a job in a in an on a, on a bean field or in a, in a citrus orchard or on an oil field, just like Oklahomans did back at home. It, you know, it has a, had a similar 
thing going on to where it would be easy for those types of people to get the job. And if you're foreshadowing ahead, if you're, you know, uh, planning in centuries, like we know that these folks do, then you have no problem uh, removing the, the agriculture and uh, the established way of life and bringing in industrialization when you have a workforce uh, ready and waiting for you. And with that said, you know, the aerospace industry as it eventually became would not have been viable without the uh, influx of the immigrants. And then, you know, the economic pressures that were brought on them and then, okay, oh, here's a uh, pretty decent paying job, you know, and you go work in a factory and um it it just couldn't it just couldn't have worked out better could it john i mean it just seems just so so absolutely just serendipitous or whatever word you want to throw in there you know it it i i don't you know uh, people talk about uh just the the kind of a bumbling unfolding of history that kind of just everything just kind of you know, through happenstance, just kind of unfolds a certain way. Um, yeah, if you're looking from stuff from th- this perspective, it, it to me it makes a lot more sense. I mean, to, to some people might might think, oh, okay, the idea is just outlandish, but um, there's other examples of this, and uh, I don't know if you want to touch on that a little bit about uh, the C- civilian conservation corps. We talked about that. Um, yeah, yeah. T- uh, say a little bit about that, how that worked out um, during the Depression. That, that'll that add credence to what we're talking about. Well, my grandfather was in the Civilian Conservation Corps, so what it, what it, it was a program set up by um, FDR to, uh, well, one thing they did is work on the national parks. They put in, like, um, little fountains, little, um, you know, the little structures and, and uh, rest areas and, you know, really nice work. If you look at it, it's a lot of that is still standing today. And if you go out in the Wichita mountains here near, near where I live, there's a lot of that that remains from the civilian conservation corps, which would um, employ, they employed a mainly uh, young men, uh, able-bodied that can go out and do that kind of hard physical labor, um, shuffle rocks around, and make um you know a a a uh, attractive sort of uh place for you know people to you know go and and camp and do you know uh later that became sort of a resort actually it was uh medicine park was a uh pretty high profile uh stomping ground for you know people who were uh, you know, elite high profile people back in the day, back way back in the day. And the, the thing about it is, was that the civilian conservation course was regimented a lot like the military so that, you know, you had to live in close quarters. You had to live in barracks. You had, um, uh, sort of a uniform, a jumpsuit, 
uh, with the CCC patch on it. Uh, you had um, uh, all of that happening as, as a response to the so-called Great Depression, which a lot of people, and we talked about that before, about that being a whole orchestrated, contrived deal. I, I don't think that that could be any more obvious. Um, but what you ended up with was all these young men that had been already conditioned and reg- in, in introduced into a regimented sort of uh, existence so that, you know, by the time World War II happened, it was like, wow, you have all this ready-made uh, soldiers that are already kind of pre-acclimated to uh, the conditions of war, uh, coincidentally enough. Yeah, that's another great point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was just another accident, obviously. Yeah, another another yeah. coincidence. What is that saying, John? Like, fortune favors those who make good plans or something like that? Something yes, like that. Fortune, yes, fortune favors the bold. Well, there's that one, and there, I, there's an, uh, another one I'm having a hard time remembering exactly how it went, but something to the effect, yeah. That, Is it fortune favors the guys who plan the future? <laughs> <laughs> Check this out. Between 1920 and 1940, the population of California, of Southern California doubled, and it doubled again from 40 to 60. Okay? Mm. L.A. had the, Los Angeles, had the highest concentration of white Protestants amongst 20 largest cities in in the U.S. in 1960. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, once again, I, I, I reiterate this only to keep making the point. This was an agricultural region, largely citrus groves and oil fields. Okay? Mm-hmm. You build defense contractors and then it is a fact and this this book even confirmed it the blue sky metropolis book confirmed it in there that the suburbs were built in proximity to the defense contractors that's also in the book that i recommend on the reading list holy land by dj waldy he talks about that how lakewood i mean uh how lake uh how lakewood was built for the workers of the douglas aircraft facility you have Lockheed Martin out in Burbank when it was called Lockheed Aircraft, and Panorama City was the other sub- suburb built at the, around the same time. Now, you can't really be a suburb unless you're away from the city, but L.A. has so many suburbs that there are suburbs all leading all the way up to the city. It's like uh, you, you talked about one time how from you know L.A. all the way to San Diego, it's, it's a one giant suburb, right? And and so um, Lakewood was, when it was built, it was 17,000 homes built all at once. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, you want to talk about a grand conspiracy here? Try this one on for size. The FHA financed the building of the suburbs. Okay? That was a program that was started in the new under the new deal okay hadn't really come into use until these massive suburbs that were uh, being built as a result of aerospace 
because they needed houses to house the people who were coming up in droves to work at the aerospace companies. So the FHA is financing the building of these suburbs. That's taxpayer funded. Okay. Then the aerospace industry of itself, the defense industry, is subsidized by the government, which is taxpayer funded. So the middleman from the person who is working and obtaining this alleged prosperity of the American dream with the, the cheap housing and the cheap labor, because the housing was cheap. It, it's admitted that the, de, that the um, developers built the homes with the cheapest materials possible and as fast and as homogenized as they could to build the most houses and to save, save all the money and then sell it at a, at a super inflated amount to the people purchasing the homes. Now, we can look back in hindsight and say, well, you know, $8,000 for a house is nothing, but $8,000 back then was, you know, $100,000 today. Mm-hmm. Or what, whatever the difference is, don't. I'm, I'm no economist. But um, um, that was a lot of money for people back then, is what I'm saying. When you could go to, you know, when you go, could go to a, a diner and buy a burger, fries, and a shake for less than a dollar. So, right. so they made money off of the development, and it was built with taxpayer money. Then the defense contractors were making money off of their defense contracts with the government. The government was paying them with money that the taxpayers made. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then the American dream is sold to you as cheap labor and cheap housing that you got from a fake economy totally manufactured into existence on your back by the government because – the World War II uh, was not a real conflict, and the Cold War was not a real conflict. And it was all designed as a form of modernism to bring forth the modern era, because what came out of all of that was the Space Age and the Atomic Age, where we saw the movement away from, old, from the old ways of living into this new modern age. And it totally suburbanized and modernized um, not only our country, but the entire world. And it, it, that's the thing about, uh, okay, this, this thing, this money system. How is it even possible to do these sort of things? I mean, I gave the example of the Civilian Conservation Corps. And uh, I have a article about it pulled up here. Uh, the final paragraph, it says, of, Ro- of Roosevelt's many New Deal policies, the CCC is considered by many to be one of the most enduring, successful, and successful. It provided the model for future state and federal conservation programs. In 1942, Congress discontinued appropriations for the CCC, diverting the desperately needed funds to the effort to win World War II. So, okay, yeah, you're getting paid working for the CCC. And say, oh, sorry, we can't uh, afford to do this anymore. We got to divert these funds to the war. Um, oh, well, yeah, you want to join the army? Uh, we got a paycheck for you there. So, you, yeah, like you say, 
this um, it, it's done on the backs of the people, and and you're talking about um, tremendous expenditures. You know that this all the work that was done through the, the civilian conservation corps and all the all the work that went into developing and laying the ground for the uh, aerospace industry in Southern California and the, and the, and the, you know, development of the suburbs and all that tremendous, tremendous amounts of uh, what, what would be representational of, of, of people's, you know, energies pumped into those, um, uh, those endeavors there. How, how is that, how is that possible when you have supposedly this economy that's, you know, absolutely crippled the great depression, you know, nobody can afford to hire. They can't do jobs. The business is, um, you know, supposedly grinding to a halt, but yet you have the government spending money basically like it's water. How does that even make any sense? You know, and that's just what's kind of out there in the history books, you know, like, Oh, well, this happened and this happened. And, it's like, well, how how does this? Well, I think I think it's insight. Well, what I, the point I was trying to make it's insight into what money actually is. Yes, I I agree with. Um, I concur. What about the space age? We've talked about that so many times about how there was um, a cultural wallpaper to it. Well, yeah, that that was uh, the the post war the the going into um, well, I think that that ties in with the aerospace industry, of course. Uh, air travel, hey, we go, we were we're we're we've we've dominated the skies. Now the next step is you know obviously outer space, quote unquote. Uh, so that, yeah, definitely is, uh, well, it would be a pre, a precursor to the, uh, so-called space program. Well, well, remember, remember we talked about how like everything in culture at that time became space age and atomic, everything from dinnerware to furniture, to clothing, to the way houses were being designed and cars they were all reflective of this rocket ship atomic thing. So we were immersed in aerospace. We were lost. You know, they have lost in space. We were lost in aerospace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The toasters, your um, cars, uh, evoking um, sort of the, the sleek rocket kind of uh aesthetic of and then tied in with that the sort of um you know that well the, you know we, we talked about that before the the, the atmosphere and the southern california kind of atmosphere the prosperity the the kind of headiness the high-mindedness of all of it all and then bringing and then starting to bring in right the uh the focus and the fixation on going to space, traveling to the stars, and it can't forget either the uh 
the films that were being cranked out that had sci-fi themes during the 50s. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, the sci-fi was just... Well, actually, you know, the sci-fi really comes in, this is interesting, too, around the time of the development of the aeroplane. So all the way back, you know, with Jules Verne, when he's talking about, you know, going to the moon and everything, and then a little bit later on, you have the airplane coming in into it. You know, I was just thinking about that as we were talking about that, how, um, like, Art Deco is kind of airplane is like aeroplane and then when we get into the space age the modernism is space it's it's you know it's less aeroplane it's more um rocket ship right but the art deco stuff is kind of kind of evokes aer- aerodynamics right yeah it i think it all kind of uh meshes together yeah cuz um uh, like you were saying of course if you look at at the television shows that were coming out you had uh, I Dream of Genie, where um, where uh, Larry Hagman plays an astronaut. Right. Uh, the Jet, the Jetsons. Jetsons. Um, it's interesting too because when we start getting into the architecture, that they actually got the idea for the Jetsons for Spacely Sprockets was based off of General Atomic in San Diego, which was designed by modernist architect William Perriera. That's what they say in that book. They say that uh, the the layout of the Spacely Sprockets on the cartoon, the Jetsons, was was based on a, a General Atomic. Um, uh, of course, all the movies, like you were saying, all the, you know, lo- like I just said, Lost in Space, and, you know, everything had a space thing, whether it was the Twilight Zone or whatever. Um, pop culture, Hot Rods. Hot rods were developed and raced on airstrips in Southern California. And um, engineers designed the manifold and the camshafts. Surfing, Robert Simmons, who was the father of the modern surfboard, he actually studied at Caltech and worked for Douglas Aircraft. Tom Morey, anybody associated or knows what a boogie board is? Morey boogie boards were the invention of Tom Morey. He went to USC worked at Douglas, had a BA in math and engineering. And, um, yeah, he, uh, was also a member of the Baha'i high faith. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so, and it, it was in, uh, literature and things, Joan Didion, Thomas Pynchon, um, based some of their stuff, uh, in aircraft factories. This is very interesting. I, I, I was not aware, I was not fully aware of this, but, um, there was a radio show that was done by Groucho Marx, and then later it was turned into a television show. It's where you get the expression, the life of Riley from. You've heard that expression, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, well, the life of Riley was a, was a radio show first and a television show later. I'm going to read a little bit here from my notes that I made off of this um essay that I found in Blue Sky Metropolis by D.J. Waldy, the guy who wrote the book on Lakewood, said the workforce was a product of the age of aerospace as much as the product of the industry of aerospace. The image of the new workforce was promoted alongside defense. The image was fabricated and imagined into being because the size of the workforce was so great. The materials and the purpose were so new, and the location 
of everything you were building was in tomorrow. The world of tomorrow is always sold to us insist and insistently asserted by the powers that be. They're always telling you, oh, this is for tomorrow, for the future, right? Work for, the workforce had to find both formal and informal self-images. The life of Riley was about an aircraft worker. He was a big-hearted lug with a nuclear family prototype, okay? And he was the uh, basic, he was basically the example for all of the, all the things post like Ralph Cramden and Fred Flintstone and Archie Bunker and Homer Simpson. He's like the first kind of, um, male, uh, lug. And he was an aircraft worker. And, and this kind of provided people with this mental image through, um, or at least men provided men, this mental image of what their, uh, of what they were. It gave people something to associate themselves with being an aircraft worker during World War II. Okay. Mm-hmm. I thought that, I thought that was interesting because we've talked about that so many times. How how um, you know the culture and the media is controlled and it's it's timed out perfectly to be able to give people their identities. And it was no different back then. They understood it very well to be able to have a radio show that was popular enough. And what he says in this um, essay is that he found that people that, you know, he grew up with, um, the author, identified with with Riley. And the situations that were played out in those, uh, in those radio broadcasts of, were situations that they, that were well understood and that people identified with. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're talking about what time period? Uh, Fifty uh, mid fifty. Well, 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 during during World War Two, during World War Two, you had the you know. And then, and then on into the fifties with with the television version. And then uh, you remember when Sput- Sputnik was launched? Yes. So, so yeah. uh, nineteen fifty-seven. The what's interesting? I was I was pulling this up because um, that that was the you know event that kicked off the so-called space race, right? If you look at yeah. Sputnik, take a look at Sputnik, Sputnik, the way it's designed, and then go look at the, uh, the, you know, War of the Worlds, um, the depiction of the invading, uh, the alien, yeah, it looks, alien, and it looks, it looks, it looks like it. Yeah, and I don't think that's a mistake either. I think that. Oh no! Sputnik's a th- do, do you know? Do you know what else was purpose? Do you know what else was purposely designed to look like the alien from War of the World? But not kidding. Go look this up. Okay. And it was built by it was built by William Perriera and Wil- Welton Beckett, the modernist architects. It was built and designed to look like the War of the World monster. You know what it was? Oh. Uh... It's it, not the L- LAX uh, restaurant. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. 
Yeah, I, 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 I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know that, and I just, I'm, I'm searching images in my mind. It's like, yeah, that that thing looks like it too. That, um, that that uh, what is it? The central terminal, or is it? I think it's like a restaurant, or is it? It's just a yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a rest. It's a restaurant slash set piece. It's you know, it's like a piece of modernist architecture for the sake of architecture. Um. And uh, yeah, it's it's a restaurant. Um, yeah, I think that's all really interesting in in light of the the concept of semiotics and how it, it you know it, it it is also um that era too was a lot a lot of paranoia a lot of paranoia yeah. man like people were like they were really ramping up the the fear of the uh, you know the 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 red scare the russian threat the commies are going to get us and uh you know the the science fiction and um uh, often invasion of the body snatchers invasion of the body snatchers yeah that, i think that was in, came out to like uh 70s right or no 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 there was a well, no no that, that's a, that's a that remake. remake yeah um yeah incorporating uh themes of like terror like uh, you know invaders or yeah body body snatchers or what have you yeah and then and then then you have film critics and analysts and stuff that'll point out that oh yeah that's an allegory for the communist threat it's like well how 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 do you look at that in light of the development of the space race though that's another thing and how that and Sputnik was seen as this um, a pivotal event that, you know, where the Soviets were flexing their technological muscle and they got superiority over us in the initial jump on the space race. And that was a, um, a signal to be afraid, be very afraid. Absolutely. And to ramp up production, possibly. <laughs> hey, we got to pull our heads out here because the Ruskies are in space, for freak's sake. Right. And interesting, it's inter I'm glad you brought that up because um, I wanted to bring up some numbers here. By the 1980s, Southern California was home to 40% of U.S. missile and space business. One third of aerospace engineers and half a million people were employed in Southern California area alone. Okay. Um, the majority of research was for this stuff was supplied by local universities. And um, they used the universities as recruiting grounds for science and engineering who prior to the Cold War those people would have gone to work at universities or work at, um, you know, national labs or something like that, right? Um, not be employed in the defense industry. So it was. It all after this, you have the complete and total the totalization. I don't even know if that's a word. The totalization of the war-based economy, where now when now when you get out of school, you go get a government job, you start working. You know, you learn how to be an engineer, well, yeah, you're going to go work in aerospace. 
And these were high-paying jobs, okay, for the time. And the way that they lured people out there, there's an essay in the book, and I know I read it to you, and we discussed it. But the way that they would lure people out was the lure of Southern California. That's what what lured them, the utopia of of the new, the modernist utopian uh, idea. And then they actually, the reason given for hiring people like Richard Neutra and William Perry era to design the buildings that these people all worked in was to actually entice people to come work there. The newness of it all, the new, the new suburbs, you're going to live in a new home. You've got this beautiful, brand new architecture, the buildings with the lush, landscapes and the flowing uh, man-made rivers in the middle of them. If you go look at some of the pictures of uh, General Atomic or Convair, and, uh, you, you know, this book points out that uh, these these buildings were, were maximum security areas, so why did you need a modernist architect to build these things if they were behind closed gates? And the author comes to the conclusion, well, it was because they wanted to lure people out of going to other jobs and lure them into the, the world of defense, which makes total sense, especially uh, like it's positioning that industry out here. It was um, enticing to someone who, you know, is growing up in Indiana or something and uh, has an engineering degree. Well, yeah, and I'm sure the culture, the music, the films, uh, were highly uh, instrumental in making that all very appealing to to people. Yeah. And then, think of how many songs how many songs have California in the title. Right, a lot, a lot. Not uh, just in the fifties and sixties, but even back, you know, like California, here I come, California blues. Those are all from the twenties, and. Right. So people people got California on the brain. That was the place to live, uh, the best weather, everything. And um, when you were talking about uh, a paranoid time period, there's an interesting thing that they mention about about uh, security clearances. Now, a lot of these people, like I said, there's over there's over half a million people employed in the defense industry, and that's not even in Southern California at this time period, that's not even including all the little micro economies and micro cultures that spring up as a result of this manufacturing base being there. That's not including all the subcontractors of the defense contractors who make the little uh, giblets and pieces that go on the planes and all that type of stuff. But the people, some people, some of these people who work directly for the defense contractors themselves had maximum security uh, clearances. Okay, these and um, they had to sign non-disclosure agreements saying they weren't going to discuss it with their wife or children, or if they were a woman, they weren't allowed to, to, to discuss it with their husband. Some some people, uh, even the husband and the wife, both worked in uh, worked with uh, security clearances where they each couldn't discuss uh, their work with each other. And had to keep it a secret. Okay, talk about social engineering. Talk about social engineering. Um, 
so you have this culture of secrecy that is proliferating uh, through a, a very small area. I mean, this is only what, a little bit over 100 miles long and 100 miles wide. And you have this massive uh, defense community. And these are, pe- these are people with uh, security clearances working on stuff. It creates a sense of isolation amongst, uh, you know, the individual. You know, you might work in, the, you might live in the same neighborhood as someone who works at the same factory, but you can't talk about work with each other. Um, we've talked about before about the, um, about the houses, about how they turn, how they turn the houses inside out and move the family rooms to the back. So it's, it, you could have a more private, isolated environment, um, so your neighbors can't see in your front window, right? Right. With the uh, Cliff May Ranch houses, it's also interesting to note that the ranch house and the Cape Cod were the, one of the two most popular suburban homes at the time, and these were kind of a like nationalist, uh, traditionalist throwback idea because you know the ranch is associ- the ranch house is associated with the wild west and the cape cod is associated with boston in 1776 and <laughs> mm-hmm. they have this kind of nationalism running through suburbia as well that corresponded with all of this you know cold war hype on top of it but th- this is something i found interesting and um i i haven't made you aware of this i wanted to surprise you with this chris okay okay Okay, there was a time period where Northrop Grumman was uh, developing a secret recon plane, and it was called Tacit Blue, nicknamed the Whale. Okay. okay. Now, the there were only a select amount of people who worked at Northrop who were even aware of this project. Okay. All right. Pictures of whales started popping up on headquarter walls, on letterhead, and etched on equipment. It was a test of the public-private knowledge in an in-plain-sight symbolism. And this is a quote from the book. It was an inside joke that provided opportunities to reinscribe belonging, secrets inside public sphere and pub and Secret inside the private sphere and public sphere inside secrets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so so basically what they did is there was only a certain amount of people who would know about this project, and then there's it's called the whale, and then there's symbolism of whales put on everything all over the place, and then like the people who know about it get to like snicker and feel like little like like their their little uh class group. Yeah, like because the insiders oh, yeah. in the know in the club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like highly Masonic as well. Because, you know, if you're driving around somewhere and you see some symbol and you know what that symbol means, you feel, you know, you feel like you're part of the group as well. And so there was all of this uh there was all of this um but social engineering going on, uh, testing, testing these people, seeing, um, you know, uh, exposing them to different environments and uh, different things and seeing what you could actually get people to, to do. And, and, and apparently, since these books are written in academic form, there's a lot of documentation of this. 
of and actually seeing what the results were of all of this stuff uh, and and uh, getting people to capitulate to totally reinventing their way of life. I mean, nobody wants to go back to the orange grove after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it uh, it is. Um, we talk about this a lot with um, organizational uh, organizational culture. And that will seep out into the wider culture. And what's interesting in light of that, you, you were talking about, you know, Southern California and how influential and keep in mind how influential Southern California is to the rest of the, of the, you know, America or United States. The, of course, with Hollywood and um the, the the culture creation industry in general out there you know the that being um yeah i think it was important into shaping and molding not only that that area but yeah the, the we've talked about this how they you know that culture seeps and migrates out of of uh southern california into the rest of the country and yeah, that's a in, it's an important component of that is you have the the paranoia of the red scare that that period and then what you described with this um you know these these secret programs and then also this sort of bunker mentality that's reflected in the architecture with uh in in you know especially suburbia what you're talking about with uh, the house, the houses being rearranged to afford more privacy. And I'll, I'll add to that too. You have this dissolution or this breakdown of community as it was traditionally always understood. Like you look at houses, like, uh, a lot of houses are still, still around. Uh, I lived in a neighborhood, uh, several years ago where, you know, a lot of houses still had front porches. N- none of the new houses do, but uh, like a lot of the old houses still around have the, the front porches. Like you even see, see people still sitting out on the porch. Not it would be, you know, relatively rare, I'm sure, compared to what it used to be like. But that was um, your community and you interact with your neighbors. But um, out of that, that. Cold War culture here that we're describing is that you have that now you have that shift to more isolation, more um, atomization of people into their own sort of little enclaves, little groups, little subcultures. And uh, then later those things being co-opted and turned into uh other cultural movements or ideas that get disseminated and spread out because they are in response to this i i i more of an isolated sort of guarded bunker mentality uh culture that was uh generated in that uh area there absolutely Something that's running parallel to all of this at the same time that we've discussed is religious modernism. Mm -hmm. Now, something that contributed to 
the work ethic of these people was the Protestant work ethic. You get these Midwesterners from Oklahoma. They're good natured, hardworking, uh, predominantly white people, uh, mm-hmm. Protestants with a hard work ethic. They're going to, they're going to bust their hump for protecting their way of life. You give them all of the, all of the prosperity, right? And you, you have to understand something. I'm not, I'm not knocking anybody's uh, religion or anything like that. That's not what my point. I'm just look at this objectively. Um, Okay, prosperity gospel pretty much comes into existence at the same time as well. But see, prosperity didn't come from God. Prosperity came from the government because they created the fake economy all at the same time period. So you had the religious idea to go along with that through self-realization and power of positive thinking, think and grow rich, uh, how to win friends and influence people. You have all of this prosperity gospel that gets infused with a Protestantism that was much different um, before all of that came into existence. You also have the fusion out here in the in the um, cold, in the um, Cold War security culture. This is where you see the start, and this is something that we're going to get into in a later talk but I'll touch on it here. This is where you see the start of the fusion between conservatism and evangelicism. Okay. This is the nexus point of that because there was actually an active part of the Southern Baptist um, church to send preachers out to Southern California to proselytize and build churches for uh, the Okies and the folks who moved out here. They, they knew full well, hey, there's this big migration. We've got to get out there. We've got to build churches for these people. And there was kind of this, you know, anytime some, uh, we've talked about this before, how um, there was a multitude of different styles of religions uh, out here in Southern California, um, not just in Eastern philosophy, but in Christianity as well. You see this kind of hybridization of prosperity gospel and Southern Baptist philosophy. Mm-hmm. And it basically turns into evangelicism because you have these, you know, Baptist preachers were known for being fire and brimstone types. And it kind of gets mixed with this prosperity gospel, which gives you someone like Billy Graham. Right. Okay. And so you have this, cons- you have this bo- born out of California was the mixing of the political conservative culture, which Religion and, and politics didn't really go together prior to that. I mean, did sort of, but not really. You know what I'm saying? Right. Well, at the same time, you had the um, Norman Vincent Peale, the kind of positivist, uh, or what would you call... Uh, positive thinking uh, that um, also, I think, ties in with uh, the uh, Century of the Self, that, that documentary. You've seen that, right, John? I mean, we talked about that before. Yes, sir. Yes, I have. 
Yeah, uh, well, we, we, do, we, we do have a century of the self on both sides. It's interesting to note that, um, like I said, like I was telling you in private, that, you know, you really crystallized this for me um, when you were talking about, I was telling you about a lot of this stuff, about conservatism and liberalism in the modern sense. And like I said, we'll get into this on another talk. But um, modernism has a universal appeal. And that's what I wanted to get into lastly here with this with this uh, talk was was the move away from suburbia and the suburbanized culture and the even further isolation of the individual and um, how people got started getting sold um, sold on things and became more decadent as the prosperity increased and so. Um, Referencing that, uh, referencing that uh, article, Swing Site for Singles, by Matthew Lassner, what it, what it actually talks about in this article, uh, which is pretty interesting, it says, The 1950s were a quiet prelude amidst the cultural obsession with nuclear domesticity to the dramatic changes in housing as well as in what began to be called lifestyles. That would take place as the baby boomers reach adulthood in the 60s and 70s. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, we see these lifestyle changes out here in California, like, like I said, and, and, you know, maybe in New York City or something like that, oh, before the rest of the country does. Okay. Um, better educated and better paid than any previous generation, young adults came to constitute nothing less than an important new demographic for specialized housing. Segmentation into even narrower demographic and market niches such as swinging singles was already becoming a hallmark of the highly commoditized U.S. system by the late 50s. And like so many trends of the day, the singles apartment complex emerged in Southern California. The early driving force was the aerospace industry. In the late 30s, companies like Lockheed, Douglas, Alcoa, and Northrop began opening facilities in southwest Los Angeles in the Sentinel Valley and South Bay communities, which stretched north to south from the airport to the ports of San Pedro and Long Beach. By mid-century, the industry was employing hundreds of thousands of well-educated, well-paid engineers and managers, a ready market for upscale apartments. See, right there. Why would, why would you automatically assume that they wanted upscale apartments? Wouldn't they want the house? But see, there was simultaneously a culture change as a result of the prosperity that was decadent. So now people weren't getting married right away. They weren't having children right away. There was, like you said, an an atomization of the individual. Mm -hmm. And so it became okay to be a bachelor and play around and live in an apartment complex. And interestingly enough, there was actually an apartment complex built in Torrance, which is right there in the South Bay, um, where a lot of these people lived who worked uh, in this industry called the South Bay club. 
And this was an actual swing site for singles. That's how it was built. And this was in the, it was, it was featured in Time magazine. And it was actually a, an apartment complex that promoted the idea of single people living there and coming there to basically, uh, for lack of a better word, mix, if you know what I mean. Right. And so this is smack dab in the middle of the people uh, and the industry that is pro- that is prosperous and is um, moving into a more decadent lifestyle culturally. Of course, it's being pushed in that direction, obviously. Um, and then what you get is um, condos. Okay. Now this, I, you might, someone listening to this, like, okay, these guys are all over the freaking map. What, what is he even talking about? Condos. Okay. Condominiums play a big role in this because by the time you get into the late 60s and 70s, you know, people don't understand how much housing. Uh, affects people, affects people's ways ways of living and uh, their outlook, uh, their their outlook uh, politically, their outlook uh, demographically, and and uh, things like this. Um, so condominiums have been uh, middle uh, condo communities thrive because middle class families have been sold the idea that moving. That, move, that mowing the lawn and keeping up the exterior was too much worry for folks uh, for folks to do in their busy lives. Also, they appealed to baby boomers. Young adults in the 1960s established more smaller and more varied households than previous generations. New family types included divorced, single parent, uh, dual, dual commute, small family and single person. By 1960, the number of families nationally with working women was 50%. Mm-hmm. Okay. By 1970, it was 60%. Single person households rose to 18% in 1970, up from 8% in 1940. In 1960, 8% of children lived with a single mother, and in 1970, 12%. Baby boomers were better off financially than young people in earlier eras, which meant they could afford their own homes, even when they did not need the whole house. New genres of housing appealed and catered directly to them, like the common garden townhouse, and by 1970, um, the condo or townhouse apartment had become part of the metro-slash-suburban landscape. Townhouses and other private communities were informed by conservative impulses, meaning that like, people who, uh, ran, who, ran, um, who ran the cities were allowing these developments to come in, right? Uh-huh. And what they were doing was... Uh, what would you know be critiqued in academic circles as being you know being way too conservative? Oh, this is a free market. You're allowing anybody to build anything you want anywhere because they used to have these big debates uh, between urban planning and free development back in the 1960s. And urban planning was liberal, and uh, free development was conservative. But they were shaped by progressive ideals and served new smaller kinds of households, including many women. 
in ways old neighborhoods did not. It fostered a new sense of responsibility of collective in an era of smaller households when people uh, felt a great need to reach beyond the cocoon of the family and avoid suburban isolation. Yeah, so now, you have the um, uh, the the reaction to the uh, suburban I- isolation to go like the the opposite direction to a more kind of like close quarters communal type setup to facilitate the uh, you know the swinger lifestyle and that sort of thing. Absolutely, it's That's a it's a thing. planned it was, it was a planned dialectic. Yeah, the dialectic where y- you have this really stultified kind of suburban uh, existence that people want to get away from, as well as the um, well. Then you know, talking about nineteen sixty, you were you were bringing up uh, uh, the kind of uh, move toward more more decadent lifestyle. And then it, it just reminded me of like the bond films coming out and starting in the, around the 1960s, early sixties. And, um, it, you know, everything is there in the bond films, you know, you have the, uh, intrigue, the whole, uh, cold war, uh, backdrop and then bond, you know, taking and the, care of business and, and, and the hot chicks and the hot chicks. And then, yeah. And then, the as a role model you know what is bond gonna do well he's gonna you know he's gonna sleep with a lot of women he's gonna but that's that he's that's what he's got to do to save the country to save his to save uh britain you know to <laughs> keep him safe from the commies you know he's, he's got got to the guy's got to do what he's got to do that's that is i think um probably one of the uh, as far as cultural influencers, probably probably a big one would be uh, yeah the Bonds. They were so popular, you know, and they're all of course all the spinoffs and then all the all all this that that was sure. really a big deal around that that period too. Now now, but before I get off off the subject, I want I want to mention one thing here to give you an idea of a scope and and how I I'm going to connect. I'm going to connect condominiums to the aerospace industry right now, okay? But to give you an idea of how large a facility was, at the northwest end of Anaheim, California, where Disneyland is located, there was once a Rockwell factory, okay? Rockwell Engineering. It was the Autonetics division of Rockwell Engineering, Pieces of it still kind of uh, exist over there today, but largely it's all been turned into something else. You know how many people work there, Chris? Don't know. 27,000 people work there at one time. Hmm. In one facility. In one facility. Uh. Okay. Now... They one of the first experiments in California with the idea of condo living was a place called Gramercy Park in Anaheim. Guess what? What, what one of the services they offered you at Gramercy Park? Uh, laundry. 
<laughs> good, good guess. No. Shuttle rides to Hughes, Northrop, Rockwell, and for a monthly fare of four dollars a month. Okay. So they were aware of the fact that that their employees lived at these condominiums, and there were they it was all worked out with the condominiums that that they were going to give shuttle rides to the aircraft facilities. So you're not saying you're saying that 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 wasn't all just happened to kind of pan out that way. <laughs> I I wouldn't know. I don't I don't hang out in the halls of power. But um, what I do know is that there's a lot of coincidence going on here, and it seems to be that uh, that where you see this prosperity popping up, you and um, aerospace, you know. You see a lot of coincidence. The the thing that we're going to get into next time when we talk is how aerospace uh, blossomed out into other things. And I'm going to just wet your whistle for the for the next time. Aerospace may have been a cover for something else entirely, considering we didn't even use any of the stuff that was built. But um, but um. I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave uh, you with one thing here um, from page one seventy one of from Bible Belt to Sun Belt. Hundreds of thousands of Americans were drawn to California's boom. By the mid fifties, an average of one thousand people were moving into the state every day. With seventy percent of these settling first in expanding residential tracts that bordered Los Angeles and San Diego, and now sprouted haphazardly in Orange County. These sojourners were generally younger, under the age of 34, more educated and more highly skilled than those who had traveled west 10 years earlier, but they were just as southern. In the 1950s census, Texas officially supplanted Illinois as the state that made the largest contribution to California's population growth, with Oklahoma and Missouri joining these two states to round off the top four. To demographers uh, monitoring statewide population growth, this marked an end to a century-long migration saga that had seen either a northeastern or midwestern state claim the leading role. But for those Southern Californians accustomed to income, incoming Southerners since the Depression, the latest statistics indicated just another phase in the Southernization of their society. If defense money built the experts' bonds of class, race, and religion held them together, the united quest for patios, pools, and a pleasant way of life now drove Californians to the housing tracks where class distinction, where class distinctions were less pronounced. Economic diversity still existed, but thanks to rising incomes and the possibility of home and car ownership, it was now muted. Some Cold War suburbs housed well-paid laborers, small-time businessmen, and mid-level managers in three-bedroom ranch houses. Others accommodated young professionals in sprawling four-bedroom versions of the same style abode. Whereas a Ford or Chevrolet was likely parked in the driveway of the former, sometimes it was a Lincoln or a Cadillac in the latter. Still, in both cases, the car and the house confirmed their owner's abilities to participate in the marketplace. Consumption proved to be the great equalizer. The American dream at whatever level was attainable for many Southern Californians, well, um, the Cold War boom proved tragically illusory. Granted, the suburban dreams that drove whites to the new neighborhoods 
um, did allow blacks and Latinos some room to exercise greater control over their communities that the whites left behind. As individuals who had embraced the politics of national defense during World War II, Southern evangelicals looked to the Cold War boom as confirmation of who they were not only as laborers, laborers, but also as citizens, and now as consumers awarded purchasing power and a new station in neighborhoods built to their tastes, these patriots shed their sense of embattlement for ones of entitlement. Having arrived physically as well as metaphorically in middle-class suburbia, they set about making sure that their church's fortunes grew in sync with the advancement, the advancements that had redefined their personal lives. Okay, and so... That will segue into a later discussion that we're going to have about um, about prosperity gospel and church paralleling this rise in prosperity thanks to not God but government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that sounds good, man. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, a lot of stuff I wasn't aware of, and <clears throat> yeah, really interesting to me. I think that um, if if you're looking at history a certain way, maybe like going into some of this stuff, just just how just how it unfolds, just how it it just kind of plays out. Yeah, I, I how, how do you hold on to a view of history that's sort of this um, undirected uh, series of just you know, one kind of happenstance after the other. I, I don't, I don't think that that, that view of history makes sense at all to me at all. I mean, how about you, John? No, it doesn't. Stop like my heart, non-stop. Mm-hmm. 